listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. It is good to see you. As many of you know, my father uh, was and is a pastor, and so uh, some of my earliest morning uh, memories are in church settings. And so when I was born, we were born in Texas, but then my, my dad took some different pastorates, and we ended up in Mississippi. And so some of my earliest memories of the church setting were um, tent revivals. Who has been to a, a tent revival? Well, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, you can, you can say it now after this morning. And so I'm just grateful uh, for just the plethora of gifted musicians we have that uh, brought their talents on full display this morning. That was a blessing to my soul, and I hope it was for you as well. Uh, you should have picked up on it, but we will be in the book of Romans chapter 9. Uh, this is our, our fourth week in chapter 9 of Romans. We've really uh, been taking our time working through this text uh, and, and part of the reason why is that Romans 9 is kind of known as a difficult text. And if you have ever spent your own time reading through it or dwelling on that, you've probably um, realized that as well, that Paul says some difficult things within this text. So we wanted to make sure that we could spend some time wrestling with it and having, uh, hopefully, uh, searching for some clarity from the Lord as to uh, the message uh, that is being presented to us. And so uh, we're just covering those last four verses of the chapter that Sarah read for us of Romans 9, starting in verse 30. And so one of the things that Paul does, he, he repeats this phrase uh, throughout the course of this letter and this writing, and that's right there at the beginning of verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? And so it's kind of this encapsulating phrase that he's going to sum up some of the things he's been trying to teach. So it's coming towards the end of uh, this longer expounded thought about the work of the Lord and how that interacts in our lives and in our reality. And so he's kind of summing up um, his, his, his thoughts in Romans chapter 9 towards the end of this. And so one of the questions he poses earlier in the chapter, I think he's continuing to address and something that we're going to have to wrestle with ourselves is that the reality that not everyone will choose Jesus. And if that is the reality we live in and the reality we've experienced, uh, maybe both with people around us or even loved ones, does that mean the word of God or the promises of God have failed? And what Paul has been contending is, is no. And he's been trying to unpack some of these realities of how salvation, the Christian notion of salvation that we get within the biblical narrative works itself out and how you can wrestle with the Old Testament and God choosing this people but then bringing it into the New Testament and uh, the realization that it, it all has come to fruition in Christ and not everybody that was part of ethnic Israel is recognizing Jesus as the Savior that the Old Testament proclaimed him to be. And so has the word of God failed? And Paul would say no. So if you can remember all the way back to when we began this study on the book of Romans, uh, Pastor Charlie laid out what he thought the motivations for this book, this letter that Paul wrote, were, that they were kind of threefold. And so one of them was to clarify the gospel. 
This message that we proclaim, that we would even say, we would repeat the, um, the words of Paul that is the power of God for salvation. This message has power in it. So he wants to clarify it. You know, if this is how people enter into the saving relationship with the God of the universe, people need to know what that message is. We want clarity as to what the message of Jesus is. And then it's also to unify the church. So they have ethnic tensions. There are those who are Jewish uh, by birth, and then there are the Gentiles that are being grafted into the family of God and uh, becoming partakers in the history and in the promises of God. So he wants unity in the body of Christ. And then another thing Paul is seeking to do is to prove that God has been faithful and consistent throughout time that he is not capricious, that he has not changed his mind, that there has been the unfolding of his salvation history uh, throughout the course of the Old Testament and the New Testament and something we are living in today, that God's righteousness and faithfulness has been consistent. And so he's going to sum up these things in these next four verses. So if I can share part of my own story in studying the scriptures— I think it was around like 19 or 20 when I was getting into college and getting serious about the word of God. You know, I've been brought up in the church. I'd heard the things, but there's something different when you're kind of hitting some of those early adult years and you're thinking more independently for yourself and thinking a little bit diff, uh, deeper about these concepts that we believe and these truths we hold on to. And I remember really dwelling the first time I kind of read Romans 9 and internalized some of the things that Paul was saying. And it gave me a lot of pause. You know, it was like, man, these there are some difficult statements in this chapter. I love Romans 8, love Romans 10, but Romans 9 caused some internal angst for me. I've struggled with it. One of the things I, I've realized about myself over these past couple weeks of, of spending time together in this chapter is that I, I think for myself, I've kind of compartmentalized Romans 9. I kind of got a little bit fixated on it and took it out of the larger context of what Paul has been writing this instruction to the church because when I've come to Romans 9, I'll, I'll think about Romans 9 and I'll read those, those statements that we've already gone over. You know, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated before they even did anything or, you know, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy or even the idea of like, hey, God's created some objects for his love and some objects for his wrath and I've kind of zeroed in on that and I think I've at times missed kind of the, the forest from the trees and so I remember even when I was beginning seminary and I got to, you know, take the, uh, the, the big kid classes on like what the Bible uh, says. And I remember there was part of me going to seminary. I was like, hey, all those things I've struggled with in the scriptures, they're just going to give me an answer for it. I was like, that'll be, that'll be great. You know, I won't have to struggle. I'll know all the answers so then, then I can tell everybody else all the answers. It'll be great. And so I remember in my systematic theology class, really enjoyed that professor but I remember, you know, what I've struggled with is Romans 9 and uh, kind of how it unpacks and unfolds God's sovereign will for, for people to come to faith in him and how some people aren't going to accept Christ and kind of where all that works itself out. And then also, you know, Paul wrote the letters to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, he says, God desires that all people come to a saving knowledge of him. And it's like, okay, how do I, how do I wrestle with these things? I remember going to the professor after class and like, hey, like, so Romans 9. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, and... 2 Timothy 2, okay, like, how, how do those things work? And he's like, yeah, right? Okay. Helpful, helpful that now I have all the answers. But one of the things that's been a, a, just a reminder to me over these past couple weeks is to remember the, the whole narrative of Scripture. Not even the whole narrative of Scripture, but the whole narrative of the single letter that Paul has written. And not only the whole narrative of the single letter, but even the first verses of chapter 9, the context he is writing these statements in. 
And the reality of what he is addressing is this internal anguish he has over seeing people that should understand, know, and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and they don't. So what do you, what do, you do with that? And so that's what the backdrop of this is. It's not necessarily this comprehensive idea of salvation. It's like, what do you do when those people you love don't accept Christ? That is the tone of what Paul is talking about. The ones you would most desperately want or the ones you would most desperately think would be counted as the family of God. And he does kind of bring up some sticky issues within this because what he is portraying and probably some of the things we've personally experienced if you've walked with Jesus a long time is that sometimes the people you most think will or are believers in Jesus Christ aren't. And sometimes you get to be a part of or at least witness those people that you think are the farthest away from God and God brings them into his family. And we, we can see both of those things play themselves out in our lives and maybe even with ourselves. And so one of the things I want to uh, just encourage this morning is that it's okay to wrestle with the scriptures. Like Romans 9 is not going to be like, here's our four points, let's put a bow on it, this is how it all works itself out. No, it's okay to wrestle with the scriptures because it's going to encourage us to pursue relationally the God who desires to know us and wants us to know him. So I like uh, that there's even um, um, some encouragement for us. Uh, the Apostle Peter, in one of his letters later in the New Testament, Second Peter, um, I, I think the book of Romans has already been written because Peter references it. And he says, you know, about this salvation, he says, our brother Paul, you know, he has written on this according to the wisdom that's given to him. And then I love that Peter says this. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. And so even the Apostle Peter is reading Paul's explanation of the sovereignty of God and our, our choice and willingness within that, and he's saying there are some things that are hard to understand. So hopefully that will give us some grace this morning to wrestle with the scriptures and take an, an honest view of what uh, uh, the Holy Spirit carried Paul along to write to us so that we could better understand this God we are pursuing. So let us begin again in Romans 9, verse 30 and following. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And so as Paul is uh, summing up these realities he has expounded upon, he's just kind of reiterating this message that uh, although some people would be um, part of the ethnic group of Israel, what he is saying that after the revealing of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and the fulfillment of the promises within the Old Testament that are talking about the Messiah, he's saying, hey, there are going to be some people who pursue religious ends, but because of the motivations of their heart, they're not going to receive what they thought they were pursuing. And so that's what he says right now, this uh, distinction between uh, ethnically Jewish people who have not come into a saving relationship with Jesus, even though they were pursuing um, a religious life, and then those who had not been a part of that historical tradition of the Judaic faith, 
but have been brought in. And so one of the things, you know, I think we can point out right now is that our motivation in pursuing God matters. And so we could be taking the same external actions, we could have the same practices in our life, we could uh, have the same forms of religiosity, but the motivation of the heart could be dramatically different. And the motivation matters to God. You know, we've already kind of covered a lot of ground through the book of Romans, and Paul has kind of uh, established it already. But one of the things that is really clear in Paul's explanation of the gospel message and even looking back on the Old Testament histories and bringing it in to the believers of that day is that faith matters to God. That you could uh, do the external action, you could check the religious box, you could uh, come to church every single Sunday, and if it is not motivated by a heart having faith in Jesus Christ, God does not look on it favorably. So let's remind ourselves even what Paul has instructed his Jewish audience back in Romans chapter 3. If you can flip back over there with me, I want to read us a couple of verses to remind us what Paul has already explained about the righteousness of God, the right standing we can have with the God of the universe. And this is what he says in Romans 3 verse 21. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. And so that's what he is laying out. He is reminding, he is summing up this message that although uh, the actions could be the same, the pursuit is there, the motivation behind it is different. And I think this is echoed even in the teachings of Jesus when he is calling followers to himself, when he is saying, hey, you know, I am the son of man. He's evoking that imagery that they would have had from their Jewish upbringing, that he is the fulfillment of the promises. He is the Messiah. What does he say to the people following him? In Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25, Jesus says this. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Self-preservation as our religious motivation is missing the point. And I hear that echoed here. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So that's what... Paul is unpacking this reality of what it means to come to Jesus. And so it is a, a necessary component of teaching the scriptures that at times we deal with issues of morality because God has a standard. God does instruct us in what is right and wrong and the best way to live in his ordered universe. But the point of the gospel is wholehearted, committed faith in Jesus Christ, not trying to elevate our behavior to a certain standard. And so if that is your motivation in coming to church, like, hey, life hasn't been that great. I know I'm not that great of a person, so maybe if I come to church, I'll catch some of that magical Christian dust on me and my behaviors will fix themselves and I'll, I'll, I'll cuss a little less and I'll be a little bit nicer uh, to my coworkers. I won't cut people off as much in traffic or run through stop signs. If that's your motivation, you're missing the message of Jesus Christ. You are attempting to save your life when his invitation to you is you don't have to save it. I'll save it for you. And that is the message of Jesus 
Christ, and that is the gospel we want to clarify as Paul was seeking to do for this church. And he says, why did they not achieve righteousness? Why did they not measure up to the standard that God had laid out for them? Why were they unsuccessful in living in this right relationship that God offered to his people? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. This is how it describes what happens in our life and what has happened through the centuries when that is the religious motivation people come with to the things of God. It says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You get these recurring images sometimes throughout scripture, and, and, and this is one of them that goes uh, throughout the Old Testament and then even uh, shows up multiple times within the New Testament is this idea of Jesus being a rock. And it's described in, in different ways. So right here he says a, a stumbling stone in a rock of offense. And sometimes that's brought into also what Jesus talks about how he is the cornerstone. And it is this reality, it's kind of a, um, you know, a multifaceted uh, example for us that uh, the message of Jesus Christ is both the foundation of our faith Everything else is built upon it. Like if you've got to start with faith in Jesus Christ alone, and then you can let it work itself through your life, and it can affect your behaviors. It can affect the way you live out this life, but that's the beginning. That's the foundation. That's what everything else is built upon is faith in Christ alone. So it is the cornerstone of our faith. But for some people, that starting point trips them up. And so you see this throughout the scriptures, and it was in the narrative that Israel had that had been proclaimed to them from the beginning, that God was going to do this thing, and for some people, it was, it was going to be kind of the stopping point in their pursuit of God. It was going to uh, disrupt their idea of what it meant to be a religious person. So the prophet Isaiah, he prophesies about this. Isaiah 8, 13 through 15 says this, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. So he's talking about this reality that the way God works out his salvation in the world for some people, even though they are pursuing religious ends, it's not going to make sense to them, and it's going to be the thing that trips them up the most and ultimately causes them to fall away. So Paul is relating these two ideas. So when he says they did not receive the righteousness they pursued because they pursued it by works, which is going to be a very human tendency we have to try to earn the good favor of God by the good things we do. And it, what the prophet is saying if that's our starting point, we're going to stumble on the message of Jesus. The psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 19 through 24 says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I don't know if I've ever read that last verse in the correct context, 
that the scriptures actually put it into. And so if you catch what the psalmist is doing, it's talking about this idea of salvation. That's what he says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them. And that's what he's saying, as this is revealed, the Lord's righteousness, you shall enter through that. You have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he's saying this reality, if you can tap into it, that God is doing all of the saving work, that you don't have to measure up to a certain standard, the exclamation that comes at the end of this is, this is the day that the Lord has made. I shall rejoice and be glad in it. We can be joyful. We can be glad that God has done the saving work, that our ability to enter into his gates of righteousness does not rest on my own merit, but on the saving work that God's going to do through the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus repeats this idea, Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The way that God works out his saving history in the world can be very just confounding to us. It will push against our human ideas of what makes the most sense. Because I find myself so often, and I hope you can reflect with me, that um, when it comes to the things of God and then the things of Jared, I very often reflect like, I would have done it differently. You know, and so I think that's why this description, I feel like it's just so visceral, like it's a stumbling stone. You know, you're, you're walking down your path and you don't see that huge boulder until you catch your toe on it. And that's how I proceed through life so often, even in my relationship with God. That I kind of get in the groove, I'm doing my own thing, you know, I'm, I almost said making my way downtown, but then I was gonna have to start singing. Um, <laughs> And I begin to be so self-reliant. And not only self-reliant, you know, I just think I can kind of manage all of the outcomes and all of the factors, all of the inputs into my life. If I can just get them lined up the way they should be, then I will have it made and I'll be a good Christian and God will look favorably upon me. And so in those instances, it's like I'm rejecting the mercy and grace Jesus has offered to me. I've rejected his offer of grace, and I've tried to build my own life out. God's work can be difficult for us to understand. It's not the way I would have done it. But I think one thing is just so clear from the scriptures. What matters to God is faith. Not our rule following, not our ability to manage our outcomes. God cares about faith. In fact, the author of Hebrews, he said it this way. He said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I know I want God to look favorably on my, my good days when I'm uh, locked it all in and I'm a, a, a nice husband and a patient father and I've done the pastor thing and I've kind of checked all the boxes that day. But I could do those things at time without believing in Jesus Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so that's why the scriptures reiterate that this message of faith in Jesus alone for our salvation is a stumbling block for many. So I've been asking myself this week, why, why is that? This, this gospel we proclaim and this gospel we believe, this incredible message of salvation, of uh, the unmerited favor of God, the unconditional love of the Father bestowed on us, not because of what we do, but just by believing in Jesus. Like, why is that so difficult for us as a people to internalize? 
You know, I think there's a lot of different reasons and all of our different stories are going to factor in how we perceive God and perceive that message and we're gonna come from different backgrounds that are going to have an impact on us. But I think one of the overriding human instincts is that idea of control. We have to give up control to come to Christ. It is not something we can manage. It is not something we can obtain. It is something that only Jesus Christ can do. To be counted as part of the family of God is not about achieving anything. It's about receiving sonship and daughtership from the Father by faith in Jesus Christ. And I've just found in my own life and in people I've talked to, we have such a hard time of letting go of wanting to be in control. That might be for different reasons, but we have to let go of our own destiny. And so there might be a fear component in letting go and putting all trust, all hope, all faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe there's an ego component that we want to maintain that we did it ourselves. Or maybe there's even this, you know, self-loathing component that, you know, uh, I don't deserve this. I could never earn it. I could never repay it. And so we keep God at arm's length and we try to just like, you know, I'm just contented with this kind of mediocre existence I have of kind of trudging on day after day after day, when what is offered to us is the eternal favor of the God of the universe who desires to know you and walk in relationship with you. The message of Jesus Christ is the most beautiful message you could ever hear in all of human existence. But for some people, they hear it, they trip over it, and they turn away from it. This is what it is about, though. This stumbling block, this cornerstone, this rock of offense, this is the gospel. It is the saving work of God only through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that saves. If you are concerned with your eternal soul, there is only one place to look, and it is Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of famous statement Jesus makes uh, through those chapters, through that address. But uh, towards the end of it, there's two that I, I would say most people, if you've been in any kind of Christian or religious setting, are pretty familiar with. And one, in talking about what it, it means to be saved by God, uh, Jesus compares it to two different paths you could take through life. And so what his encouragement is, he says, enter by the narrow gate. He says, the way is hard and few find it. But that's his encouragement to us as people that, you know, even the psalmist says there's a way that seems natural to man, but in the end leads to death. Jesus reiterates that. He says, enter by the narrow gate. It's, it's narrow and the path is difficult, but few find it for uh, broad is the way to destruction. So what is normative is for us to uh, proceed down this path of trying to manage it all, trying to control it all, trying to uh, achieve our own ends. That's what is going to be most common to man. But Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate. Few find it. It's difficult to give up control. It's difficult to just accept an identity in Jesus versus working so hard to achieve it. So he makes that statement, and then a couple of verses later, he makes this statement that I would say, you know, if you've been around church, um, this one has kept you up at some point in your life. If you've taken seriously what it means to follow God, Jesus says, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? And then Jesus says, on that day, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. 
And if you're a religious person by nature, I'm a religious person by nature. I've grown up my whole life in the church. You know, when I read that one in youth group, that one kind of terrified me. Can I get to the end? And Jesus is going to be like, I never knew you. And it's made me evaluate my own relationship with God. And so what I believe Jesus is talking about here is this reality that Paul is portraying of the Jewish people, that you could have all of the religious forms present in your life. You could have the religious community. You could have perfect church attendance. You could do all the things but the reality is you have never trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation. I'll just put it like this. You could be Jesus adjacent, and you could do all the things, but you could never know the person. And let me just tell you, let me, let me beg you for a moment. The person is better than the things. To know Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, the Savior of our souls, the God who loved us so much that he gave his own life for relationship is way better than all the external moral abilities you might be able to muster on your own. Because that's what he says. You know, he doesn't condemn the good works. He doesn't say like, oh, well, you didn't really prophesy or you only half cast out that demon. He says, I didn't know you. The person is better than the things. And so what Paul leaves the church with at the end of this address is what we can do, what the Bible encourages us to do, is to pursue Jesus by faith. Jesus can't be a, an aspect of our lives. He can't be a part of our life. Jesus must be the point of our life. He is the treasure. He is the object. He is the author and perfecter. He is our prize at the end of the race. And this is the promise that if he is our cornerstone, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's an interesting idea. It's another phrase that's repeated within the scriptures and you know, I think some of it is some, some, some cultural context and being within, you know, that first century and there's that honor and shame culture and there's this reality that the, the Jewish people are living through a, a national period of shame, that they have been a, a conquered people and they are uh, asking God to fulfill some promises that, you know, one day their, their nation is going to be elevated again. And so there's a, a lot of things they could be putting their hope in. And so, yeah, I mean, y'all know the story of the, the triumphal entry leading up into Easter that they thought Jesus was coming back to kick out the Romans. And so some people could have been putting their hope in that. And then what would have been the result when the crucifixion happens? They might have been ashamed of where they placed their hope. You know, not that long after Jesus, as the Christian movement is kicking out, once again, there, there was a Jewish sect that rose up to uh, defy Rome, and there was a, a revolution at the time, and maybe they thought like, okay, this is it. This is what we've placed our hope in. God's going to restore the nation of Israel. And then Rome came and sacked Jerusalem and completely destroyed it. And I think for all of us, there are going to be moments when we um, continue to put our hope in things lesser than the saving work of Jesus Christ. And God, in his graciousness, to us will often let us hit the end of that road and let us be let down by whatever was the object of our faith. And so this is what it's saying. The narrow road, faith in Jesus alone as our only hope, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's a hard thing to put all your eggs in one basket, to not hedge any bets, to not try to maintain some level of control, 
to not want to keep one foot out the door just in case things take a turn, but to believe on the person of Jesus Christ is to put all our hope, every single ounce of our faith in him and him alone as the only thing that can save and the only thing that can satisfy. And that is the message of the gospel. That's why I think Paul began this entire letter to the church of just reminding people of, of what that is. And that's why, you know, we want to keep coming back to the whole theme of the entire book is what Paul wrote in the first chapter in verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because this message, this stumbling stone for many, but the cornerstone for the rest of us is that it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe not to all who measure up, not to all who keep the rules, not to all who have perfect attendance, but to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, pursue Jesus by faith. He is enough. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you that your saving work is not based off our merit, if that were the reality, all of us are condemned. But God, I thank you for your word that we can uh, stand with peace in our hearts because we know the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That all who believe in him will not be put to shame. God, that the day is coming when our faith will be made sight God, in my prayer for my brothers and sisters, for our church family, for our family members, for our loved ones, for our friends, for our coworkers, that we would expend our lives declaring this message, that we would help people find the narrow gate, that of our church, many would know Christ, and that when our time is up, enter into the joy of the Father when we'd hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, that we would know Jesus as our ends. 